GenerationsBroadcastCenter.com is an online broadcast network. We are an assembly of remarkable stories told by the people that live them. Hi, I'm Scott Farber, and we're going to share some stories with you today. You know, we all have somebody we wish we could spend five more minutes with. Think about that. Every one of us has somebody we wish we could spend five more minutes with just to see and hear one more time and hear those stories and experiences they never told. You know, we have taped so many World War II guys and gotten their stories. So often we hear from the families and go, they never told us that. He never said that to us. She never said that to us. This is the place to get those remarkable stories. Now for you young people out there, more than likely you have seen this famous picture of President Lyndon Johnson getting sworn in on Air Force One after uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. You know, you probably can remember the picture. You see him standing there. There's Jackie Kennedy behind him refusing to take off her bloodstained clothes and change. She's in the shot and then you see little-known Judge Sarah Hughes. I say little-known, maybe in the Dallas area she was well-known, but nationally little-known. She swore him in on Air Force One. Now, those of you who are older than 60 say, you probably remember watching that live on TV. And it's very interesting because one day we interviewed a gentleman by the name of Peter Vogel. And Peter's mother was very good friends with the judge. And my mother was sitting with Judge Sarah Hughes waiting for Kennedy to show up. And uh, the U.S. Marshals came to Judge Hughes and told her to go home. And my mother, you know, found out about the assassination. And then Judge Hughes called my mother about 30 minutes before she swore in uh, Lyndon Johnson and said, turn on the TV in 30 minutes. And actually, my brother shook Kennedy's hand that morning. So I remember I was taking a test at Hillcrest when he was shot. Now, why did your brother get to shake his hand? Um, Anybody that could go to Love Field at the time, and if you were close enough, you got to shake his hand. I mean, he just, they didn't have such great security back in the 60s. Yeah, you know, I yeah. think that changed a lot after that. Your mother was able to be at that luncheon with uh, the judge? Well, she was waiting for, for, judge, for President Kennedy. I mean, my mother was very active in democratic politics, as was Judge Hughes, so. You know, and as I watch, uh, the swearing in of LBJ and I listened to Peter talking and everything, you know, you really realize it was so funny. She really wanted her friend to watch her do this on TV. She knew it was a big moment, but also television at that time being on TV was also still a big deal. What makes these stories really special when we do the interviews, we have no idea what anybody's going to say to us. And the stories are just all remarkable. Everybody's got a story. What's your story? Orville Rogers was a gentleman that was in the Air Force, Army Air Force, I guess, from World War II, Korea, and beyond. You know, the sweetest guy. And what's interesting about Orville, he became a YouTube sensation. You probably remember, a lot of you will remember, seeing this 99-year-old man running a foot race, a 60-yard dash against a 92-year-old man, I believe it was. And Orville comes from behind and wins at the end, and it became this marvelous YouTube sensation. Well, we had interviewed Orville for the website about five years ago, but he was this sweet gentleman who had some really neat stories. And uh, one he told us, first he told us it's classified information because I had asked him, I said, you got to give me a story. 
that we don't know about the war. And he goes, first it was classified, and then he felt comfortable telling it because, it, you know, we're talking about 70 years ago. This was a man, this was after World War II, after the Korean War, he's still in the service, and he was assigned to be on 24-hour call to drop an atom bomb. In 1951, I was recalled into the Strategic Air Command flying B-36s, the largest airplane in the world, from 1951 to 1952. I was based in Fort Worth, Carswell Air Force Base. And I can add here, because security is no problem anymore after all these many years, but I was a member of a select crew at Carswell that had the responsibility of carrying an atom bomb wherever it might be needed. And of course, the primary and only real adversary we had in the Cold War was Russia. So my crew had an assigned target on the north side of Moscow. We were on 24-hour call. If war had broken out, I would have been on my way within just hours to fly to Goose Bay, Labrador and refuel there and then take off to bomb Moscow. Wow. Yeah. You know, as a side note to Orville, which really just struck me funny that I just chuckled about when we interviewed him, he became a pilot for Braniff Airlines, oh, back in the day. And the first three months that he was flying, his co-pilot was Wilbur. He said he just never had the nerve to say, welcome aboard, you're flying with Orville and Wilbur today. I remember things were so simple, and uh, movies were always a big favorite. Movies. Everybody went to the movies. When we met Emma Thompson and we interviewed her, she was the 10th employee of Mary Kay, and she became Mary Kay's personal assistant. And you know, I had to ask, how did that pink Cadillac business all start? Uh, purely Mary Kay, that was the color of our lip and eye palette that had all the lipsticks in it. And uh, she just, that was just a selling tool. She knew she always wanted a Cadillac when she was young. And so to her, to offer a woman a way to earn a Cadillac was just very simple answer of motivation, so it worked. And so when she told you she came up with that idea, the first time she told you, what did you tell her? It sounded like a, a new idea, and she had a sign made for the front of the building in the driveway, at the front of the building on a circle driveway, uh, that said, reserved for pink Cadillacs. And uh, that was in our small office was on the way to the airport, to DFW airport, and everybody started noticing that sign because it was a busy highway. So that got more advertising than she'd had on anything else, just the pink Cadillac idea. Moving on, the name Stephen Tobolowski. Now many of you know that name, many of you don't, but every one of us We'll know this guy when you see him on the screen. He's been in a million movies, TV shows. Probably his most famous movie, of course, was Groundhog's Day with Bill Murray. But in Groundhog Day, I was good as Ned. It was a great movie and everybody saw it. It was fun to shoot. Harold Ramis was brilliant. It was wonderful working with him. It was 
interesting working with Bill Murray. He was one of the best actors I've ever worked with. Everybody thinks of him as a wild and crazy guy. I didn't find him wild and crazy at all. He was not fun-loving, but he was a fine, fine actor. But Stephen, you know, life is funny and it affects us all, you know, in similar ways. You know, we're always looking for that yes. A yes, when whatever we're doing changes everything. A salesman gets a yes. All of a sudden, his week is worth it. All the hard work he put in, where he got a no after a no after a no. An actor, auditioning, you finally get that yes. I asked Stephen about the turning point in his career, and it's a remarkable story about leaving L.A. and heading to Buffalo, New York. I went back to Buffalo and I did a Del Monte and the Miss Firecracker contest. And the lead in our show, uh, uh, Catherine Grody, she felt that she wanted her agent to come see this play because it was so good. Her agent was a big shot, Jeff Hunter, who came from Manhattan to Buffalo to see the show. He saw the show on a Sunday matinee. Monday afternoon, I get a call from New York, Jeff Hunter, and says, Stephen, this is Jeff Hunter. You have an agent? I said, no, sir. He says, you do now. He says, uh, can you come into the city? I said, well, Monday's my day. If he says, come into the city next Monday, I'll take care of you. I drive in from Buffalo to Manhattan, which is not a short journey. I went in to see him. He sat down. Within a matter of a few minutes, he said, do you need a place to stay? Do you need money? Do you need a job? He set me up with about 18 interviews. He called up his uh, associates in Los Angeles and says, I have a new client, Stephen Tobolowsky. He's going to be your client now. Jeff Hunter moved me from being an actor who was completely unknown to being in a good agency. I had a mantra when I was a student, and that was get a job, get an agent, get a good job, get a good agent. Now I jumped to the head of the class. I had a good agent. Now I was more likely to get a good job. Uh, I was on Broadway in 2002, and I was nominated for a Tony Award. When people say they were nominated for a Tony Award, that means they didn't win. That's what we say when we lost. So I was nominated for a Tony Award, and Annie, my wife, and I went to the Tony party, and there was Jeff Hunter, who I had not seen since, I only saw him that one time in the office. That one time in the office when he set me up with those auditions, and then I was back in Los Angeles with all of his associates. Never saw him the rest of my life until 2002. So I did that play to give you a time frame. I did the Miss Firecracker contest in Buffalo about 1981. Didn't see Jeff until 2002. That sounds like 21 years to me. I saw Jeff Hansen, not, not, not Jeff, Jeff Hunter, Jeff Hansen's another important man in my life. Boy, they're all named Jeff. Wow, I'm sensing a trend. Uh, so I see Jeff Hunter at the Tony party. And I came up to him, I said, Mr. Hunter, you made such a difference to me in my life. Uh, I would not have had the career I had today. Nothing would have happened for me. I wouldn't have been in this play if it hadn't have been for you helping me out. He goes, who are you? <laughs> He had no idea who I was. Oh my gosh. So for him, it was like manna from heaven. 
an absolute stranger coming up and saying, you mattered to me in my life. Yeah. Uh, so that was a big turning point. Jeff Hunter uh, got me a good agent, and from then on, I was being sent out on real jobs in TV and real jobs in movies. Isn't that remarkable? You know, we never know how people get their starts and whatnot, and it's usually a great story. And it's all confirmed because Stephen's wife, Ann Hearn, she was sitting there when we were taping. Now here is one of my favorite stories of all time. We're interviewing this gentleman who was on Iwo Jima. To me, what was so interesting is that he told me he grew up in Cicero, Illinois. Now I'm thinking back, you know, he was born in the early 20s, Cicero, Illinois. I said, hey, you gotta have an Al Capone story. Funny you should ask, he tells me. We lived on 49th Court and Al Capone's brother, Ralph, lived across the street in the only two-story house. The rest of them were all what we call bungalows, uh, single uh, family dwellings. He lived in a two-story building and it was the only driveway in the entire block. Later, many years later, I learned that there was a machine gun nest on the second floor of their garage, which if they'd ever opened that thing up would have been shooting right into our, into our living room. And, uh, but of course, fortunately, that never happened. Uh, after World War II, I did once see Ralph driving a beautiful uh, canary-colored Cadillac convertible with leopard skin seats and the most gorgeous blonde you ever saw or I ever saw sitting beside him. Uh, but uh, of course as children we really didn't know very much about uh, about uh, Al Capone and uh, his uh, activities. Uh, it was interesting though that he operated out of the town hotel which was on Cermak Road, and in order to go to school every day, why, I walked past the town hotel, going and coming. Wow. But uh, uh, they wanted, when I was five years old, I was invited to join the Capone gang, and I declined. <laughs> you know, it's amazing what you're going to find at your dinner table. You know, when you have the family over and you have grandparents over, start asking them some questions. You're going to be amazed at the things that they've lived through that they've never told you about. We interviewed several guys that were World War II veterans, and they all had the same story to tell us. All of them knew their grandparents, like, you know, most of us knew, yeah, we're fortunate enough to know our grandparents, and uh, some of them were their great-grandfathers that they were talking about. But we interviewed several guys whose grandfathers were in the Civil War. Think about that, just think about that. I'm sitting and talking to somebody. I'm going, I'm talking to this person right now, and they're telling me about somebody they knew, a grandfather or a great-grandfather, that fought in the Civil War. It seems impossible, doesn't it? But yet it shows you how young we still are as a country. One gentleman told the story about his uh, grandfather that uh, was captured uh, during the Civil War, escaped, went back to his unit, back into the war, and then, you know, he had a picture of him when he was in the Civil War. And then he showed a picture of him 60 years later in 1924, when the gentleman we interviewed was four years old. His grandfather put his Civil War uniform back on because he was going to his 60th year reunion of the Civil War. I mean, it just amazes me. But then there was Joel McGregor we talked to, 
and Joel told us about his great-grandfather's birthday when Joel was just five years old, and a couple of uncles asked the great-grandfather about that Civil War. I remember talking to my grand great-grandfather at his birthday party in Austin, Texas, and he fought in the Civil War. Wow. So I got there's some military, and they were always in some kind of a scrap. <laughs> did, did he say anything about the Civil War to you? I remember at the birthday party, Now I understand at five years old, you don't get things too straight, but I remember a couple of my uncles asking, what would you have done if you'd run into your brothers? You had three brothers on the other side. And well, he could use pretty specific language. He said, I'd have killed him just like any other blankety-blank. Now, just to put this in perspective, you got to remember the Civil War started in 1860. So we're talking nearly 160 years ago from today when we're taping uh, the podcast. Here's another gentleman that we interviewed a few years ago that I just love this story. I sometimes like to ask people, what's the greatest invention in your lifetime? You know, nowadays, nothing is going to be remarkable to us because we expect the technology. Think of the technology we've got going. That's just amazing. I've had airplane pilots hold up their cell phone and say, this cell phone has more computer power than the airplane I flew in the 40s. You know, it just blows me away when I see something like that. But this gentleman, it just cracked me up. You had a laugh. I, I looked at him and I said, what was the most important invention that you could remember in your lifetime? The self-starter and an automobile. When I was real young, you started a car by cranking it. And when the self-starter came along, that was big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and a heater in a car, that was big. Because yeah. all of those things were, were invented and applied in my knowledge. The self-starter, that was big. The heat in the car, that was big. These are things that we don't even think about. We, we, you know, you just walk into that car and it's not the fact that you have a car. You know, you got to have the right car nowadays. People have told me stories how in their apartment, there would be a hole cut out in the wall and the refrigerator would back up to it and it would have a door. So the Iceman would come and he would just unlock the refrigeration, you know, the refrigerator, put in his block of ice right in the refrigerator, close it up, lock it up. And, and that's how people got ice delivered. I'm thinking, you got a whole hole in your wall there. Anybody could come in. But back then, they didn't even lock their doors anyway, if you can imagine that. It was a, just a different time in a different world. All right, that's all we have for you today. But the stories are endless. So we're going to be showing them to you from time to time on the podcast. So please enjoy the website. Enjoy the podcast. I'm Scott Farber. We'll see you next time. <music>